Welcome to a special edition of Shouts of Grace Radio, practical conversations from God's Word, hosted by Pastor Steve Pearson of Redemption Hill Church in Saratoga Springs. Today on Shouts of Grace, we have the privilege of bringing you a recent message that Pastor Steve delivered to a group of Utah and Idaho pastors gathered at a conference in Salt Lake City. In this message, Pastor Steve gives a warning to the church of the dangers we face when we replace the ways of God with the ways of man. Here's Pastor Steve with a message entitled, Don't Replace His Altar. I have a Bible this afternoon. Go ahead and turn to 2 Kings 16. I want to jump into this. Um, I want to encourage you, but I also believe God wants to give us a strong warning. Because what we're talking about when we talk about the harvest is the most valuable thing to God's heart. It is the most precious thing to God's heart. And if we mess this up, there is no harvest. So we understand. And so as you're turning to 2 Kings 16, I want to draw your attention to the Exodus for a second. Moses delivers the children of Israel. He brings them out. He takes them through the desert. He brings them to the base of Sinai. And he's going to introduce them to God for the first time. Now, they'd heard about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but they'd never really formally met him. And so he brings them to the base, essentially is told, draw a circle around the mountain and let everybody know nobody crosses this line, right? Either a beast or person. If you cross this line and try to make your way up to me, you're going to die. This interaction is going to completely depend on me coming down to meet you and I'm going to do so on the third day, so prepare yourself. And we see the epic scene of what happens in Exodus 19 and 20, where God, God meets them. And shortly after that, Moses goes up the hill to receive the law of God. And he tells the people, wait here, I'll be back. We know what happens. Exodus chapter 32, when they see he delays his coming, they begin to make themselves gods. And God sees this. He closes down the meeting with Moses, and he says, get down there. For these people have committed a great sin. Moses comes down the mountain. He looks at the mass disobedience and he does something. He takes the law and he throws the law at the people's feet and 3,000 souls die. 1,250 years later or so, gathered in the streets of Jerusalem were Jews and proselytes from all around the known world. You could say it was a, a, a wide cross-section of the harvest of their day. And they were there celebrating one of the three pilgrimage feasts. This one, the Shavat, the Feast of Weeks. We know it is Pentecost. And as they're all gathered there in the streets in the hustle and bustle, not far away, there's an upper room with God, where God was throwing, throwing down a promise that he had made long time ago that in the last days he would pour out his spirit upon all flesh. As this was happening, Peter emerges from this upper room, and he looks out at the masses, and he sees mass curiosity, and we're told he does something. He takes the gospel, and he throws the God day, that on the very day that they were gathering to commemorate the giving of the law of Moses, God was given his Holy Spirit. On the very day they commemorated something that killed 3,000, God gave something that redeemed 3,000. And his message then is the same as it is today. It is the law that brings death, and it is the spirit that gives life. The Holy Spirit gives life. Brothers and sisters, when talking about the Holy Spirit, Jesus said when he comes, 
He is going to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment, of sin because they don't know me. The world doesn't know me. He says in John 6, that when you come to me, the Father, in order for that to happen, the Father has to draw a person. Helco needs to drag him away from and to something. You guys, his, his message is clear. It is the Holy Spirit's responsibility to draw, to convict, and to give life to the dead sinner. It is not ours. This harvest is his. It belongs to him. He's the Lord of the harvest. The harvest is not reaped by human ingenuity. You guys, the harvest isn't reaped by, by, a, by a better than great worship team that, that just kills it and they have this wonderful atmosphere and the lights are perfect and the smoke machine is shh, shh. And the harvest certainly is not reaped by a great communicator who has swag and a relevant vibe. The harvest is reaped only totally, completely when the sovereign Lord of the universe, the creator of all things, the Holy Spirit, drags, convicts, and gives life to the dead sinner. That is it. Do you believe he can save 3,000 in a day like he did in Acts 2? Or 5,000 like he did in Acts 4? or multitudes and multitudes like he did in Acts 5? Or do you believe he can start a revival like he did in Acts 8? Do you believe he could turn your city upside down with the gospel like he did in Acts 13 and Acts 16? Or pull people away from idol worship and false religion like he did in Acts 18? Do you really believe that? Because I do. In fact, I don't believe he can. I believe he's going to turn northern Utah County upside down. Totally. And I don't believe there are any obstacles in his path. And dare I say, our church expects him to do it. And I don't really have a lot of concerns. In 2 Kings 16, the king of Israel teams up with the king of Syria. Pekah and Reason gather together and they go down and they attack Ahaz, the king of Judah. Ahaz has a panic attack. And so he sends a message up to the king of Assyria, Tiglath-Pileser, and he says, will you come down and help me? And with this message, he sends some gold out of the temple of God. Hold on to that. We'll come back. And Tiglath-Pileser agrees, and he comes down, and he helps, and he beats back the Syrians and takes back land. And in the aftermath of that, Ahaz goes on a thank you tour up to Damascus, and he sees this big, beautiful altar. Let's pick up the story in 2 Kings 16, verse 10. When King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, he saw the altar that was at Damascus, and King Ahaz sent to Uriah the priest a model of the altar and its pattern, exact in all of its details, and Uriah the priest built the altar in accordance with all that King Ahaz had sent from Damascus. So Uriah the priest made it before King Ahaz arrived from Damascus. And when the king came from Damascus, the king viewed the altar. Then the king drew near to the altar. He went up on it, and he burned his burnt offering and his grain offering and his poured out his drink offering, and he threw the blood of the peace offering on the altar and the bronze altar that was before the Lord he removed from the front of the house, from the place between his altar and the house of the Lord, and he put it on the north side. 
King Ahaz goes up. He sees this popular altar. It's, it's, if you cross-reference it with 2 Chronicles 28, it tells us that all the people were gathered together, and he saw that it worked for them, and it was amazing. And so he grabs the blueprints of this altar in Damascus, and he sends it down south to his high priest. And he says, I need myself one of these. Build one of these. And not only do I want you to build it, once it's built, I want you to take it and I want you to put it in the front of God's house. And I want you to take what God made, the the brazen altar, and I want you to put it on the north side, i.e. put it behind what I made. What God is saying here in his word is that we are going to take something made by the world in Damascus and we're going to put it in the place of what God made at the front of his house. That's what I want done. You guys, we're told in 2 Chronicles that this one act became the ruin of Ahaz and all of Israel. It became their ruin. You see, the reason is because God had a design. That altar had a design, and it had a location, and no one was to mess with that. If you look at Leviticus chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, it tells you the design. When an Israelite would, would, would want to offer a sacrifice, right, they would take up an unblemished lamb, and they would bring it to the doorway of God's house, and then they would kill it. They would shank the sacrifice. It was God's way of saying, look, your hands are dirty, and I want you to see you are responsible for killing this sacrifice. And then the high priest would take that blood, they would go in the doorway, and up against the first thing that would be there would be the altar. They would touch the four horns of the altar and throw the blood up against the altar. The altar was a bloody mess. There was nothing clean about it. There was nothing unoffensive about it. It was a mess. And we're told that this altar in Leviticus 1.5 was at the entrance of God's house. In other words, it was the first thing you encountered. Everything else was behind it. The bronze laver where they dipped and cleaned, behind it. The altar of incense, behind it. The, The table of showbread, all the ministry was behind this first thing. And a person, before they approached God, needed to make sure they dealt with this first thing. They didn't get to go any further. They weren't invited into ministry until this was dealt with. Folks, we're told this altar is where the sacrifice was bound. We're told this is where the blood of the sacrifice touched the horns. This is the place where mercy was given. You remember the story of Adonijah when King David was on his deathbed. What happened? He, he, he kind of had a I love me party. I'm going to be king. And then when it was told to him, when a guy came in and said, hey, Solomon, your brother, um, he's riding the, 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 the king's mule and he's riding on his, he's the king. You just deposed the true king. He ended his party and he went in and grabbed hold of what? The horns of the altar. He was asking for mercy. It was told to Solomon, well, you know, Adonai just grabbed hold of the horns of the altar. Well, what do you want us to do? Well, bring him down and give him life if he promises to do right and do good. And that day he was given life. But not long after that, another man went and did the same thing. His name was Joab, a scoundrel. Hey, it worked for Adonijah. He went in because he was in trouble. He grabbed hold of the horns of the altar and it was told to Solomon, 
Joab's grabbed hold of the owners of the altar. What do you want us to do? Well, tell him to come out. He won't. Then kill him right where he's at. And what you find is this altar gives mercy and life to one and brings death and judgment to another. You guys, this altar, its design and its location mattered to God. It mattered because it was a shadow of a much greater altar that would come. It was a shadow of an altar where the sacrifice was bound. It was a shadow of an altar where blood touched all four corners, all four horns of the altar, the head, the hands, the feet. It was a shadow of an altar that gave life and mercy to one and brought death and judgment to another. And brothers and sisters, it is the first thing a sinner must encounter if they're going to approach God. They have to know they, their sin, has killed the sacrifice. And it cannot be tampered with. It must never be moved. I must never put something else in front of it because that altar's message is too offensive. Now, this seems like a no-brainer in a group of people like this. Well, I don't get it. You guys, Ahaz went to Damascus, and what he saw was very enticing. It was very tempting. And there's a huge temptation that lies not at the door, but in the church today. You see, you guys, the world, like never before, is telling you how it wants to be loved. It's telling the church what love looks like. It's demanding. It's putting forth its demands as to what repentance looks like and what it doesn't look like. It's like the world is laying out the cover charge. If you want access to us, if you want to speak to me, here's what you must pay. Acquiesce to the demands of what genuine repentance is and what love is. And listen, many in the church are paying that cover charge. They're removing, they're replacing something, a, a, a different altar. The Damascus altar is going up because there's a philosophy that's saying, look, man, this altar's really offensive. If I tell somebody to repent of a sin, and if I even mention that sin, good gracious, what if they don't come back to our churches? And instead, there's a different altar, an altar that says, come on in. Come on in, and I know you don't believe in God yet, but serve in our children's ministry. Tend to our doors. Play on our worship team. For the last six months, God has just relentlessly put me in one contact after another. And I have a friend in California. About a month ago, I was talking to him. I asked him. We were just kind of catching up. I was asking him how, how COVID, you know, restrictions in California, you know, how COVID's going with your church. How's it going? He said, well, you know, we're kind of starting to come back. But it's real different. We got a lot of people that left, and we got, you know, a lot of new people that come. The conversation ended up yielding this idea or this saying of his that he's got a new worship leader, and his worship leader is married to a man. Now, I'm not here to parse that out. I don't, you know, that's not the intention of this. And he said, we got a lot of people that are upset with that. He said, the problem is, is I'm trying to teach people the grace and the mercy and the love of God. And I'm trying to teach them that every person has a story and every person's on their own faith journey. And I listened to my friend and I said, you know what? I hear what you're saying. And, 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 and on one hand, I appreciate the heart. But let me just say, that's not true. 
Not everybody's on their own faith journey. Brothers and sisters, do you know when a faith journey begins? When you exercise faith. <laughs> and not until then. Now, you might be being drawn, you might be being convicted, but until you exercise faith and repentance towards God, the Bible says I'm dead in my trespasses and sins and I am by nature a child of wrath. So that's not true. And this new version of grace that you're sharing with people and this new version of repentance that you're sharing with people isn't going to win what God purchased with his blood. It's not going to. And as far as everybody having a story, I get that. I'm not this like, cruel person. I'm not, I'm not trying to be up here and be like this. Right? I get it. Everybody's got a story. But do you know what, brothers and sisters? On one hand, the story's irrelevant. On the other side, it really does matter. Let me give you an example. The woman who was, who was caught in the act of adultery, thrown in front of Jesus, she has a story, Yeah? And we don't know what it is. The Bible doesn't tell us what it is. But let's, for the sake of making a point, let's give her a story. Let's say she was married three times before that day. Her first man she was married to for five years, he beat her every day, left an indelible mark on her psyche. The second man, after she divorced him and stayed single for five years, she married another person, and he cheated on her every day. For five years, left an indelible mark on her psyche. She divorced him five years later. She married another person. He didn't beat her. He didn't cheat on her, but he just mentally abused her. Beginning of her marriage, she put on a couple LBs, and all he did was say, you know what, you're not the person I married. Lose weight, go to the gym. Left an indelible mark on her psyche. Five years later, she divorces him, and she meets the man of her dreams. He loves her. She loves him. They're soulmates, man. And, and they even talk about all that we would have met 20 years ago. So they start a relationship. The only problem is he's married. And he can't out himself and her because, well, he can be killed for it. So they carry on their relationship. The people in the town have an idea about it. The religious leaders know about it. Every Wednesday night, he comes over to her pad. Well, one day a carpenter comes through town. And they know where she's at, so they go and grab her, leave him, throw her in front of Jesus, say, the law says, Stoner, what do you say? She's got a story. Fake, right? I'm not, <laughs> not imposing here. You guys, Jesus dismisses the accusers, and then he says to her, where are your accusers, woman? I have none. Neither do I condemn you. Ha! You see? Look at the mercy and the grace and the love of God. Look at that. Oh, man, he, he didn't confront her. He didn't do any of that. Yeah, but read the rest of the story. Go and sin no more. What did he do in that statement? As loving as the God of all eternity could, he assessed her actions as sinful and told her to repent. That message wasn't divorced from this. It was a part of it. We don't have the right to replace what he's designed with something that we think would be a more effective way of doing things. We don't have that right. We simply call people to repentance, and we yield the tool, the instrument that he gave for reaping. The Holy Spirit reaps the harvest. Do you know what they reaped with? A sickle. Not a pillow. <laughs> that thing was sharp. 
And it was laid to the root of what they were wanting to harvest. When the gospel was shared by Peter, when the gospel was shared by Stephen, when the gospel was shared by Paul, and they called people to repent, we are told those people were cut to the heart. Cut! Folks, you have to, I have to, young, young brothers in this room, listen, you got a major temptation in front of you, man. A major temptation because your temptation is to fill seats in your chair and, and just fill seats in your church. And I'll tell you what, if the harvest becomes an idol, you will sell all you have and all you believe in order to worship it. Let me say that again. If the harvest, which belongs to God, becomes an idol, you will sell all you have and all you believe to worship it. I love community. And I love relationship. We're all about that. But community and relationship is not the power of God unto salvation. The gospel is. And we have a whole church generation that's emerging and they're replacing the altar God made with a new Damascus altar that is less offensive, a little bit cleaner, because in their mind, well, we don't want to turn people off. If we share that story, it's going to turn them off. And what if they leave? And let me suggest something to you, brothers and sisters, that's fear. And now what's happening in churches is this idea that's coming up to the front is we don't want to really talk about the need to repent of sin because if we do that, listen, they'll run. And so we'll kind of wait and we'll let them get in. We'll let them get past the altar and we'll kind of let them get into service and let's let community and relationship win them. No. Because let me suggest that if we operate in fear on the front end of not wanting to scare people off because we share the truth with them, that fear will be far more intense on the back end when you got something to lose. Like a congregant, like a tither, like a relationship, like a friend. He's the Lord of the harvest. I don't have to worry about the fallout, but I have to bring them to that altar. Now, some would say, okay, listen, I get that, but I think we're just talking about a difference of approaches. This is about philosophy, not theology. In the end, we all end up in the same place. Do we? Read the rest of the story on your own. It started off with him giving a little bit of gold out of the temple to Tiglath-Pileser, the king of Assyria. And then it went to him moving the big thing, the main thing, God's thing, and he moved it to the back and he put his thing up front. Read what happens in the rest of the story. Because now he goes deeper into the tabernacle and he disassembles the bronze laver. And he takes the precious metal off of the base and, he, and he, he takes it away and he puts the basin on top of a stone and it says he does that because of the king of Assyria. But you know what? It doesn't just end there. Read the cross-reference in Second Chronicles because then it says he goes after the vessels of God. The vessels weren't at the front of the house, brothers and sisters. The vessels weren't in the laver. The vessels were in the holy place. In other words, he went deeper and deeper and compromised more and more. The vessels were the little things. He started with the big thing. He disassembled that, and then he went further and further until eventually, read Second Chronicles 28, that dude shut the doors of the temple. This is God's design 
It is precious. Now, we love the unbeliever, and we relate with the unbeliever, but we do not treat the unbeliever like they believe before they believe. Thank you for joining us on today's special episode of Shouts of Grace Radio, hosted by Pastor Steve Pearson. We hope you've been encouraged to see the Bible as God's source of truth for everyday life and grace as the foundation for a genuine relationship with God. If today's special message has encouraged you in your journey following and learning more about Jesus, we would love to hear from you. You can visit us online at shoutsofgraceradio.com. At shoutsofgraceradio.com, you can listen to all of our episodes, share them online with your friends, and find out more about Pastor Steve. Shouts of Grace is an outreach of Redemption Hill Church in Saratoga Springs, Utah. Thank you again for joining us on today's show. And from all of us at Shouts of Grace, it's our prayer that you would grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ.